E, you ready? All right, let's pray, and then we're going uh, to jump in. So let me, let me pray for us. Jesus, uh, thank you that you have rescued us and that you are our Redeemer. And uh, we just want to stop and, and honor and worship you um, and say thank you, Jesus. Would you also send your Holy Spirit to um, reveal you in new and fresh ways? And I pray that not only for myself, but I pray that for the people who are here in the room, for the people who are here online, that that's what we long for, Jesus. And so would you make it so? And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hey, this year we are uh, looking at the book of Colossians. Uh, and this morning I asked uh, Smiley the question, I said, why, I know that you prayerfully considered this, you talked about this, like, why did you pick Colossians? And his response is so cool. He said, you know, Colossians is a book that is uh, centered on Jesus, that it proclaims the um, sufficiency and the supremacy of, of Christ, and that that's what the book is all about. And um, a few weeks ago, we, um, as we kind of got introduced to what's happening, Paul writes this book because there are people uh, influencing those that he loves, saying that, hey, the gospel that you heard, that Jesus has done everything necessary to make you acceptable to God, that that's actually not true, that you need this and this and this and this. And so Paul writes this book, this letter to his uh, friends and believers in Jesus just to remind them of who Jesus is and uh, also remind them who they are because of who Jesus is. And so last week, if you were here, we, um, we actually looked at verses 13 and 14, and um, we, we learned that Jesus rescues us, and that he rescues us from the dominion of darkness, that he rescues us by his Holy Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel, and that he rescues us for the kingdom of light. And this morning, we're actually going to be looking at the exact same passage and sometimes you go, oh gosh, two, two messages in a row on the exact same passage. But I'm telling you that you can look at the exact same passage of Scripture and view that from different angles. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. But it's kind of like, like looking at a picture for a long time. And so I, I actually, you're going to need me to help, help me with something here. I have a picture that I'm going to show you in just a second. And I need you to do two things. If you recognize the person in the picture, I need you to yell their name. And number two, I want you to think about what in this picture do you notice first? Is that clear? You with me? Okay. Dottie, here's the picture. Who is that? Smiley Sturgis. Okay, what do you notice first? I cannot help but stare at that, those luscious locks right there. That is a mullet... If I have ever seen one, church in the front, party in the back. How many of you noticed the suit Smiley's wearing? I think I've seen Smiley wear a suit twice in his entire life. Okay, there's also an Easter egg in the picture. There's a weapon in the picture. Anybody see that? Is that a hatchet or an axe? Bottom left. Anybody see that? I don't know if that was a message illustration. I asked him about it. I'm like, dude, where were you? How old are you in this picture? Like, he's like, I don't know pre-2002. That's all he'd give me. I'm like, ah, oh, super helpful. How many of you noticed that somebody took their scrapbooking tools and crimped that picture in the shape of a football? And then they, I don't know if the, the 
color is faded. I don't know if that's supposed to be red on white, but it's definitely pink on white. It's almost like a Valentine's Day card of some sort. I asked Karen, I was like, did you do this? And she was like, no, no. How many of you, um, how many of you noticed, uh, Dottie, put the next uh, slide up, that uh, with the exception of that haircut, that Smiley looks the exact same 40 years ago as he does today. And then how many of you noticed that uh, Smiley, Bible in this hand, gesturing with, you know what he's doing in this picture? He's just doing what he's always done for almost 40 years, 30-something years here in St. Augustine, proclaiming the gospel week after week after week. Um, last question is this. Anybody think this looks like Luke Stevens? Same, same haircut, same car. Sorry, Lukage. Uh, but man, what a sweet, what a sweet looking haircut. You can look at a picture, and the more and more that you can look at a picture, the more and more things that you begin to notice, the more and more things that you begin to observe, the more and more things that you get, begin to sink in. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, um, but from a different angle. So if you have a Bible open it up to Colossians chapter 1, and if you don't, you can uh, follow along with us on the screens, uh, and I'm going to read this for us. This is Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Last week, we talked about rescue. This week, we're going to talk about what it means to be redeemed. Let's read it. <clears throat> he, meaning Jesus, has, meaning finished, delivered us another translation for rescued, from the domain of darkness and transferred us. Verse 13 is all about movement, that you were located in a place, the dominion of darkness, and that Jesus intervened and he has transferred you to a new location. And the truth that we glean from that is that you and I were made for a place. Oh, there you are. That's awesome. I can see you now. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And here's the part where not only are we made for a place, but we are also made for a person because this kingdom is one in which his beloved son resides and is. Verse 14, in whom, this is pointing back to that beloved son, his beloved son, in whom we have, here's our word, redemption. And that word actually means a lot in both biblical language and in Hebrew culture. And so Paul uh, is going to qualify what he means by redemption by tacking on this little phrase at the end when he says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So that's our, that's our passage uh, for today. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. So it's helpful for us, for our conversation today, to define the word uh, redemption or redeem. And uh, that's actually a marketplace term. It's a, it's a transactional, like exchange money for something or exchange something for money type of terminology. And it's quite, quite common um, for those who are, would be reading this letter because in their culture, there are several things that can be redeemed. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, let's pretend that uh, I, I live in ancient Israel, and what I do for a living is I farm, I don't know if that's the correct terminology, olives. I, I, I have you know, vineyards, and I, I have olives. And I 
sign a uh, contract with another person who wants to buy 50 barrels of olives. And I say, okay, great, give me six months and I'll have those 50 barrels ready for you. Six months rolls around. I count up the barrels of olives that I have and I go, shoot, I'm supposed to deliver 50, but I only have 35. And so I go to the person who I signed this contract with and, and, and sheepishly say, hey, listen, I know I said I'd give you 50, but I, but I only got five, 35. But, and he goes, yeah, but you, you signed this contract for, for 50. And I go, yeah, I know, but like, what can we do about this? He said, well, you, I still want the 15 barrels. I said, okay, well, what are we going to do in the, in, the, in the meantime? He said, well, you've actually got a little bit of land, and you have some livestock, and so I'm going to take those as collateral until you can pay me the 15 barrels of olives that you owe. And when you do, the debt will be paid, and those, I will release those, that property and those livestock back to you. Property, animals, and people could also be redeemed. So, same example. I sign a contract for 50 barrels, but I decide, you know what? I'm taking the money. I'm gone. I run away. Somebody finds me, brings me back, brings me to the guy that I've signed this contract with. Hey, Strider, you owe me 50 barrels of olives. I got zero. He looks at my possessions and go, well, you got a little bit of land. You got a little livestock, but that's not going to cover the debt. In order to cover this debt, I want you. So now I am indebted to this person, and my only option is to give myself to this guy in order to satisfy the debt. And so I begin to work for this guy in order to pay off my debt. And either one or two things happens. I either work long enough to pay the debt off, the, the guy says, okay, we're even, we're square, your debt's forgiven. Or I have a family member who comes along and takes money out of their pocket and says, I am paying Strider's debt, release that. And the guy with the contract says, yep, satisfied, good to go, you can have Strider back. That the concept of redeeming is simply this. It is the securing the release of something or someone through payment of a price. That's what we're talking about today. Securing the release of something or someone through the payment of a price common, super, super common language. The other thing that coincides with this is that when the debt is paid, there is a word that is used in order to let both parties know that the payment has been made and it is complete. You know what that word is in Hebrew? It's actually a phrase. It's this one. To die. So, this word is actually used in a couple of different ways. Uh, when you are an employee and you finish a day's work, and you go to your boss at the end of the day in order to receive that day's wages, you know what you tell your boss? To tell us die. Meaning, I have finished the work for that day. And your boss would pay you the appropriate wage in which you, the two of you have agreed upon. If you're an artist, you're a creative person, you paint something, you keep in, uh, envisioning it, looking at it, tweaking it, but when it is done... As an artist, you stamp that painting with the word to die, meaning it is complete. As the artist, I am done with this. It is finished. The most common, common use of the word to die was to satisfy those debts. And so when those 15 barrels of olives or when those 50 barrels of olives would have, paid, would have been paid off, you'd have been given a receipt. And stamped on that receipt is the word to die. 
It is complete. But there's also, in Hebrew culture, there's also one more use of the word tetelestai that would have been very common and very understood because it was a part of an annual basis. Every year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would offer two sacrifices. He would take two goats, and here's what he would do. He would slaughter one. He would take the blood of the goat, the first goat, cover himself with it, and enter into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence resided, in order to make himself uh, acceptable to God through this blood sacrifice. And then what he would do is he would take the other goat, and he would lay his hand on it, and he would pray. And his prayer would be, Lord, take all of the sin of all of Israel, of all of these people, of everything that we've done from the past year, and would you transfer this sinfulness into this animal? Amen. And then they would let the goat go, wander, push it out into the wilderness. Anybody know what that's called? Scapegoat. It's where we get that terminology. When that process was complete, when the priest had both completed his own sacrifice for the purification of his sins and the transfer of all the sins of the nation of Israel into that animal, you know what he'd say? To Tetelestai. It is finished. Okay, so why, why the lesson on, uh, on Hebrew language this morning? Here's why. Here's why this matters. When God created all things, he established a covenant with his people. It is a binding agreement. God, as superior, says to his creation, I will love you, I will walk with you, I will be with you, you can count on me. To the people that he created, our forefathers and foremothers, he said, what I want you to do is enjoy this. I want you to be with me, I want you to love me, I want you to walk with me, I want you to believe me, I want you to say yes to my yes to you. And there's one thing that I want you to not do. See that tree over there? The one that we call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. And what happened? Our forefathers, foremothers, ate of that tree, did exactly what God said not to do. And we, through them, broke that covenant with God. And when that happened, when that happened, God said, you have a debt that our relationship has been broken and strained because he fulfills his part of that covenant, but we did not hold up our end of the bargain. We incur a debt. And throughout all of Scripture, it is clear that that debt is called sin. And throughout every book of the Bible, we are reminded over and over and over again of the crimes that we have committed against God. Because this isn't just 15 barrels of olives that we didn't uphold. This is God himself and his commandments and his law. This is our creator that we are now indebted to. So Romans 3.23 says this, For all have sinned. We inherited sin, 
and the things that we think and say and do are just a reflection of what's going on internally. This is not a statement that's like, yeah, every, nobody's perfect, Strider. No, this is, for all have sinned and incurred a debt. And I think this verse of scripture summarizes that really succinctly because it says, and fall short of the glory of God. That that's the standard. Keeping the covenant is the standard. And all of us have fallen short of that. And what God says is, hey, this can't be dismissed. You, you now have a debt, and you are now criminals in my sight. That's why Jesus would say in John 8, 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin, everyone who participates in sin, is a slave to sin. Jesus' description is because of this debt that we have incurred, we are now under the control of a foreign oppressor. That we work for sin. That we are living in sin. That we are, in fact, controlled by sin. That Jesus says, this is a really big deal because you are slaves. And we have to, as hard as it is, and this takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of courage to read scripture and then go, not only is this true, but it's true about me. It's hard to admit that. Because we want to be self-sufficient. Do it ourselves. I can accomplish all things. Pull myself up by my bootstraps. That's our nature, is to want to, want to do it ourselves. But to stop and to admit that we are slaves to sin, that we don't have any other choice, but to sin and be controlled by sin, it's really hard to do. But that is what Jesus says is our reality. And then finally, in Romans 6, 23, we read this. For the wages of sin. Remember that illustration of the employee completing a day's work and then going to his boss and saying, Tetelestai? Well, the equivalent of that is us living our lives saying, Jesus... I did what I want, I thought what I want, I said what I want. My life is over to tell us die. Thinking that he's going to say anything but, you deserve death. Because what we learn from scripture is that what we deserve, that our wages, that as employees, for lack of a better illustration, as employees, what we deserve is death. And that God himself says the penalty is not hey, work this off a little bit, and then you're good. It's, no, you deserve to die. That is why these words are so incredibly important, because they scream to us that we, we cannot fix ourselves, we cannot save ourselves, and yet there is a debt that we hold between us and God. Here's the good news. That's the bad news of the gospel. Here's the good news. You and I need a redeemer. And just like there's a common denominator between every book of scripture when it comes to sin, there's also a greater story being told throughout all of scripture about the heart of God. And the heart of God is this. He comes to seek and to save the lost. And the reason that we know this is because from the very beginning, God provided 
a substitute. This is Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. And this takes place after Adam and Eve have eaten from the tree and they go make clothes and they hide and then God comes walking in the garden and he says, where are you? And they come out of hiding and they say, we're hiding. And he says, why were you hiding? And they say, because we were naked. And then God says, well, who told you you were naked? And then becomes the blame game. Well, she did and he did and the serpent said and then he, you know. And then God realizes the covenant has been broken. The wages of sin is death. And what God had every right to do is end humanity right there. I'm done. First two people, we're done. But he didn't. Because he loved us so much. So what we find is instead, God provides a substitute. Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin. How do you get garments of skin when there's only animals? You kill one through the shedding of blood. That's number one. And then number two, he clothed them. And the other picture is that God sheds blood and then he covers Adam and Eve as a substitute for this atonement for sin. What they deserved is death. What they got was a sacrifice on their behalf, and a covering of sin. That's why Jesus, in Mark 10, 45, would describe himself like this. One story throughout all of Scripture. The shedding of blood, the covering of sin. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. That's a humbling thought came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. In order for redemption to take place when it comes to a person, a ransom had to be paid. And that was either an incredibly large monetary sum, if it was person to person, or if it was person to God, what that required was a blood sacrifice. And so Jesus, when he says that he comes to give his life as a ransom for many, what he is communicating is that he is going to shed his blood in an exchange. And it reminds me of a movie that was made almost 20 years ago called Man on Fire. And I don't know if you've seen this or not. This is not necessarily a, uh, a kid-friendly movie, so like, don't go home and like, oh, we're going to put this on, and you'll be, that's a bad decision. Uh, <laughs> But Denzel Washington plays a character named John Creasy, who is hired to uh, protect a little girl um, played by Dakota Fanning. And Dakota, in the middle of the movie, gets kidnapped. So the whole movie is about Denzel's character doing anything possible to free her from captivity. And it's such a picture to me of what Jesus does for us. Watch this.
You all right? I didn't hurt you. Hi. <laughs> all right, your mother's waiting for you. She's right down here on the end of the bridge. Okay, you go home. palabra no dice nada y al mismo tiempo lo esconde todo igual que el viento que esconde el agua como las flores que esconden lo una mirada no dice nada y al mismo tiempo lo dice todo como la lluvia sobre tu John Creasy trades his life for her life. And we watch a movie like that, <clears throat> an innocent nine-year-old girl, and we go, yeah, that's right. That's good. For a guy to trade his life for that kind of innocence, that's good. But the exchange Jesus makes is holiness for criminals. And whoever would make that exchange? People might die for a good cause, for a nine-year-old girl, but whoever lays their life down 
for people who owe them. That is the heartbeat of God that runs throughout all of Scripture. That Jesus himself becomes the ransom needed on our behalf. So we go back to Romans 6.23 and we read, for the wages of sin is death. That's us. But there's a comma. And after it, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. That when we hold our lives up to God, to tell us die, it's complete. But he says, that equals death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the picture that we see, the place where we find that to be true, is when Jesus climbs on a cross and sheds his blood for us. Jesus, when he was on the cross, said seven things. This is the last thing that he said. It's from John chapter 19, 28 through 30, and it says this. After this, this is while Jesus is on the cross, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge folded the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, can you guess? It is finished. To tell us die. Literal translation of it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What is Jesus communicating when he says the phrase to tell us die? Well, Jesus is taking his wages. And what he's saying to his heavenly father is, for 33 years, I have done everything that you have commanded. Every thought, every deed, everything I've said has all been to glorify you. Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice for that payment of debt. Because Jesus is the only person without sin. And so when he says on the cross to telestai to the Father, what he is saying is, it is now complete. And the reality is that if Jesus himself says, it is now complete, then the, you and I can do nothing to add to the work that he has done. It is finished. It is complete. Jesus has paid the debt. And you and I can't go, but wait, here's my, here's my things. Doesn't that contribute? Like, I, I've been a good person. Like, doesn't that, I, I, I've, no. Jesus says, it is finished. It is complete. To die. And so, if there's nothing that you and I have to do, if Jesus has done it all and completed it all and finished it all, then, then what's our part in this? And I think Romans 10, 9 has an amazing summary of what we do in response to the heart of God. And it says this, 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That our part is to confess, is to admit that we can't save ourselves, and to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I read a story about a missionary who uh, was sent to a tribe in Africa, and uh, the reason that he left was because he wanted to translate scripture into uh, the language in which that tribe understood it. And he came to um, the word believe, which is all over the New Testament and the Old Testament. And he sat there and thought, how do I communicate this to people? Like, how, how, do I, how do I help them understand in their own way what the word believe means? And about that time, a guy from the tribe walked in, tired from the day's work. And he walked into the guy's office, and he sat down on a chair. And the missionary says, so how, how are you doing today? And the guy goes, I am so tired. As a matter of fact, I'm so tired that I am putting my full weight on this chair. And the missionary, as he's listening to the guy, goes, that's it. To believe means to put your full weight on something. That this is more than just head knowledge and understanding it and, and trying to compartmentalize it like we do with so many things. That this is putting your full weight, your trust in something. And that chair better hold. And if it does, I'll, amen, hallelujah. But if it doesn't, I'm going down with the chair to put your full weight. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, here's the promise, you will be saved. Our part, when we hear the story of redemption, when we understand what God has communicated to us, our part is to receive it and to believe it. Have you done that? If you haven't, would you do that now? There's no magic words. Romans 10, 9 gives you a pretty good outline. that You just confess that, and you believe it. You say, I'm going to trust it. I'm going to stop trying to do life on my own. I'm going to stop trying to save myself. I am going to trust the perfect sacrifice of Jesus and his blood shed for me on the cross in my stead. Won't you do that today? And if you have, if that's you, tell somebody. Because that is something to celebrate. You can tell me, you can tell whoever invited you to come. But tell somebody. Now here's the other cool part. When you look at Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, we find some things that have happened in the past. We find some things that are happening in the present. And we also are alluding to some things that will happen in the future. Let's look at this passage one more time. He has, past tense, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have, present tense, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
we have redemption. If Jesus, if we believe that Jesus was the only acceptable sacrifice to pay the debt of sin, and we have put our full weight in that, then we have redemption. There is no might, there is no need to do, there is nothing else than we have redemption. One of the questions I've been thinking about this week is, what would it be like to be around a person who without a shadow of a doubt knows that they have redemption and that they have a redeemer? What do you think that would, what do you think that would be like? I got a glimpse of that this week when I met with um, Dave and Smiley. There's a standing meeting at um, 2 o'clock on Tuesday afternoons for anybody who's you know, speaking to kind of get together, pray, look at the message, swap ideas, all that kind of stuff. And I'm sitting uh, in Smiley's office and in walks Dave, and he's got a huge smile on his face. And like I can tell, I can tell that Dave is having a great day. Like he just can't help not hide that. So he, he sits down, his posture's different, he's got this huge smile on his face, he's alert, energetic, and I'm like, I, I literally turn to him, I'm like, Dave, um, what's, what's different about today? That's the question I ask him, like, you're different, what, what has happened? And he turned to me in the most non-cliche way possible, and he goes, Strider, I'm having a great day because I have a redeemer. And I could tell that he believed it, he said it with his eyes, he said it with his mouth, he said it with his body language, and all of a sudden, I was like, yeah, but something, something more, like, and I asked him, I'm like, yeah, really? Like, Sue Ellen didn't make a really good breakfast? Like, y'all didn't have a really good staff meeting? You didn't come from a really good lunch? Like, he's like, no. He's like, have you seen the weather outside? I'm like, yeah, it's not like today. It's 70 degrees outside. Like, yeah, I have a redeemer. And I just thought, Jesus would you convince me that I have redemption and that I have a redeemer? I, I, read, a, I read a quote this week, and uh, it kind of stuck with me. Can I read it to y'all? It says this. Glasses. <clears throat> the more convinced you become that God is the source of all joy the more resolved you become to fight for those joys, abstain from sin, and the easier the fight will become over time. Let me read that again. The more convinced you become that God is the source of all joy for you, the more resolved you become to fight for those joys, and the easier the fight will become over time. Here's the other part. But unless you become convinced in some measure that this is true for you, not just true in Scripture, true for you, the power of your habitual sins will keep their hold on you. The more convinced you become that God is the source of all joy for you, the more resolved you will become to fight for those joys and the easier the fight will become over time. So the question that I've been wrestling with is, and trying to help um, explain is, how do you become convinced of something? So here's, here's my answer. 
Have y'all had, have y'all had the best barbecue in St. Augustine? I'm a, has anybody been to the County Road 207 barbecue truck, County Road Provisions 207 barbecue truck that sets up one day a week across from the movie theater in the boat parking, one of the boat parking lots, kind of catty corner to the movie theater. You been there? If you, have, if you are not raising your hand, you have not had the best barbecue in St. Augustine. The, we got introduced to, um, to this place because Shannon and I went to a wedding um, rehearsal. This was, I don't know, maybe three or, three or four years ago at this point. And um, finished with the rehearsal. Nice place out on the intercoastal. Uh, and the smell of barbecue starts to hit us. And we're from North Carolina. And so, like, you know, every place... North Carolina, Kansas City, Memphis, South Carolina, they all think they've got the best barbecue. North Carolina's the real winner. So we smell the barbecue, and we're like, we're just setting ourselves up for disappointment because we've eaten a lot of barbecue in Florida, and the standard is really, really, really high. And so reluctantly, we go get some barbecue, all the fixings, um, sauce, everything, sit down, take a bite, and we go, oh, my gosh, this is good barbecue. Eat the whole thing. I go back up to the guy who's serving the food, and I'm like, hey, do you do this for a living? Do you do this for fun? Like, what's, tell me your story. He's like, oh, I just opened up a barbecue truck here in St. Augustine and uh, been doing some catering and some events and stuff just to get people uh, to notice, you know, to, to know about it. And uh, he said, yeah, I'm set up on Wednesdays across from the movie theater, and on Saturdays we go to the amphitheater. And I'm like, I'm coming to see you this Wednesday. He was like, okay, great. I was like, I, I got to have this barbecue again. So I show up across from the movie theater, no signs, spray-painted looking black trailer truck, and a uh, few people lined up in front of it. I'm like, oh, yep, this is the place. Walk up, see a sign, brisket, pulled pork, turkey. Not doing turkey, had the pulled pork, I'm gonna try the brisket. Walk up to the counter, hey man, how's it going? Hey, yeah, I remember you from the wedding, how's it going? Yeah, hey, I'm gonna try the brisket sandwich. It's like, okay, you want pickles and onions on that? And I'm like, pickles and onions on barbecue? Literally, that's my response. And he goes, well, that's how we do it in Texas. And, I, and he, he says, oh, we got a Texas barbecue fan in the house? This is awesome. Um, he says, that's, that's the way I'd recommend it. And I said, well, you're the pit master. If that's the way that you recommend it, give me pickles and onions on the brisket sandwich. All right, be right up. Pay for the sandwich. Comes folded up in one of those you know, brown paper, like what teachers use to put cover bulletin boards, like that stuff. Grease already soaking through the paper. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. No place to sit out there. So when you go this week, uh, just know you can't sit down. You got to take it with you somewhere. So bring it back to the church and uh, take a bite of this brisket sandwich. And it is the best barbecue I've ever had in Florida. Qualify that. It was unbelievable. It's called County Road 207 Provisions. When you go, just tell them Strider sent you. I get a discount uh, next time I show up. Just kidding. Uh, I don't know. I don't even know the guy's name. I should, I should know it because I've been there forever um, so many times. But it is unbelievable. I can't, y'all, I can't tell you how many people I have introduced to this barbecue place. And the reason, the reason that I'm willing to introduce people to this barbecue place is because, number one, I'm convinced that it's the best barbecue in St. Augustine. And number two, I want to see if other people 
would be convinced that it's the best barbecue in St. Augustine. So how do you apply, how do you apply something stupid like barbecue to the question that we're trying to answer of how do we become convinced that God and his ways brings more joy than our idea and our ways? And the only answer that I can think of is just to go eat the barbecue. Like, like if you're listening to this, and you, not me, but like if you're reading scripture or following along with scripture this morning, and you're going, this is really good. Eat it again tomorrow. Let me give you another verse of scripture just to chew on a little bit. This is 1 Peter, verses uh, 18 and 19. It says this. We've talked about this word knowing. That's more than just with your head. It's more than just great. I learned it one time so I can spit it back out on the test and then forget the answers later. This word knowing communicates ownership. So knowing that you were ransomed. That someone paid a very, very high price for you. From the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Going back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And you weren't ransomed with perishable things like gold and silver. This isn't a monetary transaction. Verse 19, but you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. You were ransomed in a way that is satisfactory to God the Father. That is complete. That is finished. Precious blood of Christ, who was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What's communicated in these couple of verses in 1 Peter is that Jesus is our high priest who intercedes for us before the Father on our behalf. He's the high priest. He brings the sacrifice to the Day of Atonement. And Jesus is the high, sorry, is the sacrifice. That he not only brings the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. Both high priest and lamb, all at the same time. So how do we become, how do we become convinced? The more and more that I think about it, the more and more my answer becomes knowing Jesus. Reading his word. And when you read it, being so thankful for it. Do you really, do you, let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that Jesus would give his life for you and then give you a book to make your life miserable or burdensome or difficult? When you become convinced of something, particularly that you have been ransomed, your face shows it, your calendar shows it, your pocketbook shows it, your conversations, conversations show it. I didn't have to be coached. I have to be coached to tell you about dumb barbecue. But my hope and my prayer for us, for me, for us this morning, is that we might become convinced that God is the source of all joy. 
that we have been redeemed in every way that we need to be. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are the perfect sacrifice. You're the lamb without spot, without blemish. And Jesus, you're also our high priest who goes before the Father to make atonement. And Jesus, we just want to stop and say thank you. We know that we can't contribute to that in any way. And so help us to receive it. Help us to put our full weight of trusting that behind what we believe. Jesus, I pray that today and tomorrow and the next day that we would be convinced that we have a Redeemer. And that as we continue to to show up and to be with you and to walk with you and to listen to you and to hear from you and to talk with you, that you would transform our head and our hearts and our hands as you promised, as you have done, you filled us with your Holy Spirit, so lead us. Thank you for freeing us from something that